Welcome to the Tally Room Podcast. I'm Ben Rowie. In today's episode, we'll be discussing last night's ACT election and touching on Labor's landslide victory in New Zealand. My guest today is Jill Shepherd. Jill is a lecturer in politics at the Australian National University. Hello, Jill. Hey, Ben. So we're recording this episode on Sunday morning, the morning after the election. Uh, last night's results in the ACT, you'd have to say, were a rebuke to the Liberals who look set to lose seats and uh, had swings against them in four of the five electorates. And the result was particularly strong for the Greens, who look to gain at least one seat from their existing two and could gain as many as four. Um, Jill, should we be surprised at this result? Uh, look, I'm really going to hedge today and say on one hand yes and on one hand no. I mean, there's the, there's the feeling around Canberra and, and full disclosure here, like I live in what we call the Blenthal Gulf of Canberra, you know, the kind of um, hippie in the north where we all make good money but, um, you know, are worried about the environment. Um, and there is certainly a feeling around Canberra that the Liberals uh, in in getting behind a fairly socially conservative leader in Alistair Coe have shown that they are kind of out of touch with what Canberra wants. Now, I don't know how much of this is, you know, progressives kind of ad hoc justification for hating the Liberals. I don't know how much of it is, um, you know, is genuinely sort of good political commentary. But it's certainly a thing that exists. It's a kind of black cloud, I guess, that hangs over the Liberal Party at the moment. And so for an electorate that is, uh, and again, we sort of like to pat ourselves on the back for, for how progressive we are in Canberra, um, and I always sort of caution to replace, you know, progressive with rich and well-educated, right? Like we have all of the, the material needs sort of covered for the most part and we can worry about you know, social issues and environmental issues and all these sorts of things. I, yes, I think I think there's a genuine sort of feeling that the Liberals are out of touch. Um, they probably do need to moderate a little bit. Um, they do need to, to look to be um, a bit more lockstep with a progressive um, territory. The Greens, on the other hand, I have really... Um, I was really impressed with their campaign. And as a political scientist, we kind of, we're usually loath to say that the campaign matters. But I think the Greens have shown themselves here to be really, really strategic in a way that the other parties haven't. And I think often the Greens have to innovate in ways that the major parties don't have to because they just don't have the resources. Um, so one thing they did here, for instance, and I'm sure we'll talk more about Herr Clark, but, but they ran as though they had a, a party list. So they ran as though, um, there was an obvious top candidate and an obvious second candidate. And when you have Herr Clark and you're trying to, um, you know, compete against other parties but also compete against um, other candidates from within your party, I think that's a really savvy move. I mean, that's always been their practice, right, that they have had a lead candidate. And uh, it's interesting that they're now developing a second candidate because the last time that the Greens won two seats in one electorate, which was in Malongolo in 2008, one of the things that happened there was that there'd been no campaigning for anyone except Shane Rattenbury. So there was effectively a tie for the second green spot between Caroline Lacuda and the other candidate at the time. And Lacuda came out on top, but there there hadn't been an effort. Whereas it does seem like now, uh, I think her name's Rebecca Vassarotti, who's the uh, possibility for a second green seat in Currajong. Yeah, they've actually been able to reduce Rattenbury's vote in a way and improve her vote, which makes their position stronger. Yes, absolutely. And I think that's um, that's really strategic, and and even things like um, you know this sounds really glib, and sometimes you know thoughts make sense in your head, and then when you say them, they sound awful. But even the fact that she's a woman, I think, is um, is the kind of strategic like ticket balancing that 
um, the Greens are, are showing themselves, you know, willing to do. Um, I think probably the other parties here do it a little bit. Certainly um, the Liberals have, have really prided themselves on um, a lot of ethnic diversity in their tickets here. But, um, yeah, but to, to really embrace that, you know, senior candidate, you know, next senior candidate, all down the line, seems to have really paid off for them. Now, there are other situations where it's actually quite disadvantageous to have a ticket, right? Like the we've talked before about how Labor has often done really well in places like Ginandera by having their vote evenly spread amongst their candidates, which means the drop below the quota is also evenly spread out and they can win on a lower vote. Um, but it works better for the Greens the other way around, although it is interesting that there doesn't appear to be a real standout Greens lead candidate in Ginandera. They're quite close together. It's a bit of horses for courses, right? You have to have the, the charismatic or the, the name recognition kind of candidate who can pull close to a quota themselves and then drag other people over the line. I, I talk about innovation, but, you know, this is the kind of stuff people like Nick Xenophon have been doing for years, right? So one other thing I wanted to mention is we have a history in Australia and, and New Zealand where people aren't really used to proportional representation. They're not really used to multi-party government. And usually if you're the small party in government, you kind of lose your identity, you get punished, you go backwards the next election. You know, that's definitely something we see in Tasmania. It's what we saw after the 2010 federal election that, you know, as soon as the Greens went into government with Labor, they started going backwards all around the country, including in the ACT. Um, and, you know, it is. we're going to talk a little bit about New Zealand, but the um, that has a history in New Zealand as well that um, support parties often get hammered at the next election, whether or not the major party in government is uh, staying in government or not. But it's interesting that both the Greens in the ACT and the Greens in New Zealand, the result was much more impressive for the news, the ACT Greens than the New Zealand Greens. But both of them picked up ground after being quite closely associated with a Labor government. They, they seem to be able to maintain their own identity uh, without being subsumed in. People don't seem to be reacting to them like, why would I bother voting for the Greens if they're just going to do the same thing that Labor's going to do? Maybe there's a little bit of that in New Zealand, like... You know, there's such a big swing to the left that we've seen that it's possible it's masking some kind of why bother with the Greens uh, element. You know, there could be a few people who would otherwise vote Green but are sticking to Ardern. Um, but it is interesting that they've managed to strike that balance. Oh, for sure. And this is something that, that we've considered is pretty well established in consensual system politics, right? That there's this, uh, what I've seen called a black widow effect, that, you know, that you, you come in and sort of kill the, the host and then you get punished as the, the minor party. I don't know whether it's ostensibly this sort of effect, but actually there's something else going on in the electorate, you know, ideologically or, or in terms of policy preferences. So maybe people aren't just generally moving towards the green. Uh, and I used the example of, um, of Brenda Beller in the ACT and Shane Rattenbury was on the ABC last night sort of saying, oh, we know our candidate, um, Jonathan Davis, he's, he's got a really strong local profile. You know, he's a great candidate. He's, he's, you know, had the best ground campaign. Maybe voters in Brenda Bella were fairly exposed to the bushfires and now, you know, and now climate change seems a lot more salient. And so I'm always sort of hesitant with, you know, to, to buy into these sort of grand narrative because especially in a hair class system where we don't need many votes to, um, to, to swing a result, you know, it, it's easy to buy into, but it's probably too easy. There was a really high early vote in this election, uh, about 
I think it was about 60% of the electorate ended up voting before election day. Actually, 60% voted pre-poll. It was more like 70% when you include postal votes. One of the interesting factors about that is that vote got counted really quickly because those pre-poll votes, not the postals, but the pre-polls, were cast mostly electronically. And that meant they were counted really quickly. And we had a distribution of preferences on the night, which is a kind of a first for a Hare Clark system in Australia that... You know, imagine if we had that kind of thing for a Senate result that we could, even if it's an incomplete result, we get that distribution of preferences on the night and we can say, okay, based on the 50, 60% we have so far, um, these are the people that are currently winning. And quite frankly, a lot more seats would be undecided now if we didn't have that information. So that's an interesting new development. I'm I'm not a massive fan of electronic voting myself, but it definitely um, speeds up and uh, aids with the uh, calling of election results. It, it certainly does. Um, I mean, I don't, I, I'm not that worried about having certainty on election night. You know, I just think everyone needs to calm down a little bit. But saying that, it's always really unsatisfying when you go to bed on election night and there's no call. So, I, you know, I, I can, I'm sympathetic to both sides on that front. Um, electronic voting is really interesting, I think, in that it, it prevents people from intentionally casting a blank ballot, but it also helps people who want to cast a valid vote. but um, because we do have quite a complicated electoral system, we don't. And so we know that the, the vast majority of um, the vast majority of informal ballots of kind of um, you know discredit, disallowed ballots at the end of election night tend to come in in um, areas with high migrant populations. So we think it's probably it's as much about kind of proficient like English language proficiency. Um, familiarity with our strange electoral system as it is people just being angry and, you know, drawing a bunch of dicks on a ballot paper. Um, and I think that's the kind of understudied part of um, of electronic voting here is what it does to um, to the sort of fidelity of the vote, I guess, and to making sure that people do have, um, you know, do have their voice. Um, in to, yeah, and in terms of speeding up the count, I'm still pretty um, iffy about about preference flows in, uh, you know, sort of projecting these preference flows. Maybe that's me because I always, you know, come up with some incredibly complicated and and illogical ordering for my preferences. Personally, I think a lot of votes will exhaust, um, so that helps to speed things up as well. So, um, parties like the Belco Party, who ran in only in Gendera and deliberately ran five candidates so that votes would exhaust after the fifth. Um, after the fifth preference, you could just vote for them and then not have to send your vote to a major party. Um, that'll complicate preference flows and you know, make the next couple of days more interesting. How do you think the campaign was affected by having this tremendous number of people voting early? Like, do you think that the parties adapted? Did some of them adapt better to uh, kind of the result being kind of over before election day? I think there was a noticeable front loading of the campaign. Um, nothing really much got said in the last few weeks. Uh, and I think for most people, it was actually really lovely. The Electoral Commission here was really explicit about this being a polling period and not being sort of opportunity to pre-poll. But then the expectation is that most people would vote on election day. They they said, no, this is going to be a polling period. We want um, we want people to come in when they can and at a time that suits them. Um, and I think we'll see more and more of this. And so the campaign was, you know, aside from kind of we, we might laugh about, you know, the Alistair Coe sort of stunts, it was really, really subdued and gotten up sort of straying into like, you know, hand-wavy narrative here. But it felt like a really 
relaxed, um, non-combative kind of thoughtful campaign. Now, you know, how much of this is confounded by COVID and the year that we've had generally in the ACT and that everyone is probably sick of, you know, of drama, I don't really know. But, yeah, it was interesting to kind of see a, a noticeable absence of, um, of big splashes. Okay, so New Zealand. I haven't covered New Zealand on the podcast before now, although I did a little bit of live blogging last night. Huge landslide victory for Labor. Um, first time there's going to be a single-party majority in New Zealand since they adopted the current system in 1996. Uh, Greens and did quite well. Uh, the National Party has been smashed. So uh, the right-wing ACT Party, which has been bottoming out for the last decade or so has done quite well and is on track for about 10 seats. So I think a lot of that is centre-right voters who've uh, gone for the bigger option, um, feeling more free to vote to vote for someone else with the Nationals in a bad state. Um, but uh, yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting result. It does also show a bit of, um, as the minor party share of the vote has shrunk, it has made it easier for major parties to win a majority when they have a landslide, whereas... That wouldn't have happened in the past. I think what we're learning is that crises aren't good for minor parties necessarily, and and so what that says about you know how voters here and in the and in New Zealand you know view the Greens I think is probably really interesting that they're so entrenched now in both systems that that a vote for the Greens doesn't feel like the protest vote it did 15 years ago, um, and, and that'll be an interesting phenomenon to keep watching right whether that rebounds after the pandemic or you know, you know whether that sort of um, whether by then they're so entrenched. And um, I, I thought that was sort of the most interesting takeout from New Zealand. I mean, obviously Labor's bumping win was um, was pretty spectacular to watch, you know, even as a, a completely disinterested observer. But the fact that you do have really strong results for ACT and for the Greens, um, yes, this shows that there are people who, who aren't comfortable with this, you know, one-party state sort of feeling that, um, you know, and maybe I'm sort of transposing my um, my ACT experience here again, but, you know, who aren't comfortable with a, a government being so entrenched but also don't feel comfortable switching their vote to a, a fairly sort of shambolic opposition now. You know, the New Zealand National Party is, is much more shambolic than the Canberra Liberals at the moment. You know, if nothing else, the Liberals here are stable. Um, they're on message. They seem to have a really sort of young and cohesive team, uh, which is in direct contrast to the New Zealand National Party. I, I like anything that breaks up that assumption that votes will only go between the two major parties. And so I, that's sort of my, I guess, positive takeout from both elections. So that's about it for this episode of the Tally Room Podcast. Thank you, Jill, for joining me. Always a pleasure, Ben. You can find this podcast on your podcast app of choice. If you like the show, please consider rating or reviewing us on iTunes. You can follow The Tally Room on Twitter at The Tally Room or like us on Facebook. This podcast is made possible thanks to the generous support of our donors on Patreon. Sign up at patreon.com slash tallyroom. Information about this podcast is available at tallyroom.com.au and you can email questions or feedback to thetallyroom at gmail.com. Thanks to Krista Bro for writing the music you hear in this episode. Once again, thanks for listening.